a lot of times people tell me I don't want a natural result and they'll come in with scars above the eyebrow and wrinkles coming up to here. I don't care about scars, doctor, because of that status symbol that you guys are referencing. Well, 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 today we are so excited to be joined by Dr. Jonathan Zelkin on the podcast. Dr. Zelkin is a board-certified plastic surgeon based in Newport Beach, California. So just a little bit about his credentials. He received his undergraduate degree in biology from Cornell University. He continued on to a degree in medicine at Tufts University and then completed his plastic surgery training at Johns Hopkins Hospital. So unlike, you know, some podcast episodes where perhaps we have, you know, Instagram personalities that are <laughs> self-proclaimed experts on plastic surgery and cosmetic procedures. We have an actual expert, someone who trained and has has very rarefied credentials. So we're super excited to have you, Dr. Zelkin, on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining. It's my pleasure. Thank you for recognizing my credentials. You know, a lot of times nice guys <laughs> seem to finish last around here. Um, so I think sometimes when you put in the uh, the hard work and you're not a very big marketing heavy guy, sometimes you you fall back a little bit. So it's nice to be recognized. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Well, you know, it's actually, it's funny that you bring that up because I feel like, and I'm just curious for your perspective on this. I feel like probably as someone who, you know, you went through all your years of schooling and you really, you trained and you learned how to do all of this, you become a business owner and you are working and then you have to kind of, you know, start your own marketing arm of your practice. Was that like a, an interesting experience for you as a plastic surgeon or do you feel like that's actually not necessary? No, I think it's absolutely necessary. And it's definitely the hardest part of being on your own. I started off actually in a, in a corporate practice where I was sort of a hired, you know, corporate doctor, which is a weird thing to think about. Um, my bosses were not doctors and it was sort of unusual, but they would deal with the staffing and the hiring and the firing and the marketing. And it's easy to sort of take that stuff for granted when you're not doing it. But once you're, mm-hmm. you're left on your own, it becomes really difficult and, uh, and humbling. I feel like what's interesting about it is there are a lot of people who are looking to get procedures and they might really be looking on TikTok and Instagram and just assuming that if a doctor has 200,000 followers or if his numbers look really good and he has a lot of um, exciting before and afters that this is going to be the best, you know, surgeon to go to. Whereas that doctor might just have the best marketing department, but his skill set might not actually even be as good as a doctor with less followers and less like, you know, glitzy promo. So I think it's just such an interesting wild west where, yeah, I think as a consumer, it can be difficult to know who to really trust. I, I absolutely pity not only the consumers, you, but I also pity the doctors because now as a physician as well, I mean, we have to follow the trends too, to be current, to stay current. And mm-hmm. rather than taking the lead from, you know, academic papers, scholarly journal articles, things like that, we're trying to see which popular, which procedure is the most like Insta famous, you know, things oh that, things that are really popular it sort of behooves us as plastic surgeons to incorporate them in our practice, whether or not we're Insta famous at the least we can offer procedures that seem to be what everybody's asking for. So it's hard for the community at large, but it's also hard for the surgeons because the lines become very blurred as to what's real and what is, you know, either paid for or doctored, no pun intended. I bet it's also another challenge to sort of combat all these armchair experts you have 
like I'm sure maybe, you know, patients who come into you who have watched a bunch of TikToks on a certain procedure and think they kind of know the ins and outs of it or, you know, the risks or the risks they haven't considered. And you have to then, you know, sort of as the expert be like, well, actually, you know, the, your internet expertise doesn't, it hasn't given you the full picture. You're absolutely right. And it's easy to quickly say that, but at the same time, as an expert, it's impossible to constantly be on top of all these trends. So I had a patient just yesterday asking me about taking certain herbal supplements for hair growth. And it's $40 per week for this herbal supplement. And the first thing I wanted to say was, hey, you know, all these homeopathic things don't really work. Like, save your money. Mm. Like, don't mm -hmm. do it. I mean, if there's no science behind it, I mean, I, and some influencer is out there sort of marketing it, I feel bad. But at the same time, I don't have the 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 credentials to say no to it. I can't say no. Right. I mean, what if it does right. work? There's just so much unregulated for better or for worse, you know, products and services out there. It becomes almost impossible to stay on top of all these things. Yeah. It's not like you're like, actually, in my spare time, I was learning about the ashwagandha tea that's, you know, trending <laughs> this week on, uh, on TikTok for hair, for hair growth. Um, and so here's my full academic paper on it. You know, that, <laughs> that makes total sense. But people, I mean, I have a YouTube channel as well, and people will always comment on this. Like if I'm talking about buckle fat pad removal or liposuction of the neck, you know, people are going to say, why don't you try mewing, which is some exercise with the muscles. Oh, in the mouth. Yes. Why don't you try gua sha and like all of these things, you know, and it's like, I quickly want to like, like bash them. But the more I studied mewing, I see that there's actually merit to the science behind it. So it's, it's oh, easy really? to say no right away, but then you actually do some work and you're like, okay, there's merit to this. But then on the other side, even though there's merit to the argument of these sort of unusual yoga exercises for your face, you have to do such a tremendous amount of work for such a small Delta. Whereas mm -hmm. surgery, in my opinion, right. is still for some of these procedures going to be the gold standard. So, I mean, it becomes it really does become impossible. I was hoping you were going to say that mewing doesn't work at all and that it's total, you know, snake oil <laughs> because I have I've now felt the mantle of the fact that I, you know, have to now be mewing for 12 hours a day, like fall upon me after seeing it on, I think, the Skinny Confidential. And yeah, anyway, so this is really disappointing that I also need to be mewing in addition to all the this other things I have to do every day. <laughs> So that's exactly it. You know, I think the, the thought behind it, I think there was a, it was an oral maxillofacial surgeon 50 years ago or so from overseas in Britain or something like that, who said, you know, the less you use the muscles around your mouth and push your tongue up against your mouth, the more you can sort of restructure your facial bones and your facial architecture. And like the concept is kind of cool and it makes sort of sense, but it's, it's sort of like actively committing to having braces, but but you can't yes. do it 24 seven. You've got to talk, you've got to interact. And the Delta that you obtain is not always realistic. So facial muscles will remodel as a result of a response to like muscular activation. For example, if you're grinding your teeth all the time and your masseter gets really big, then you get a spur of bone, for example, on the end of your mandible. Things like that can occur and do occur, but that is over the course of years of 24 seven, you know, force. It's not something that you can do for, you know, three months and see a meaningful change. So surgery, a lot of times does alleviate the need to maintain these unrealistic practices that I, you know, 
right out of the outset, I wanted to say, this is silly facial yoga. Come on, give me a break. But then you study it and you're like, okay, I've got to be a fair doctor. I've got to look at both sides of the argument. Then you, you study it and you understand the rationale behind it. There's merit to it. There's papers written about it. And then you got to go back and you say, now that I've seen both sides of the argument, I've got to make a critical decision as an expert. My, mm. my idea is that mewing is not something that's worthwhile necessarily. Although the concept is kind of cool. Um, but yeah, no, I don't think Chan, it's worth your time to stick your tongue <laughs> up against and, and like practice sleeping that way and things like that and affect your airway for the sake of some small change that a filter on your camera might be able to affect uh, just as easily. There's, I mean, and this is just my personal opinion, but there's something so unattractive about the being a person who cares so much that you're sticking your tongue up against wherever it's supposed to go to mew six hours a day that it's almost like whatever delta change you might affect within years is completely negated by looking like a crazy person um constantly mewing that's a really interesting argument and i think because i i do have a youtube following uh, and i do sort of think outside the box in terms of the procedures that I offer, the facial implants that I place, and my technique and approach is a lot less traditional than a lot of doctors. I do attract mm -hmm. a certain sophisticated crowd of plastic surgery patients. And I agree with you, the things that they do, what they go through, where they travel, who they visit, and basically how they succumb to being, you know, controlled by this lifestyle of like soft maxing or hard maxing or trying to create mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. superhero face will consume them and make them look less attractive. At the same time, yeah, yeah. they can't be attractive if they don't feel attractive. And so it mm -hmm. becomes this sort of dichotomy that's really hard to crack into. Sorry to interrupt you. No, I no, I actually think that that's such an important point. And I think that Chandler and I, we have a lot of female listeners, a lot of listeners between 22 and 40. And I think that it's so important for us to impart a message that, you know, it's not about tweaking yourself into oblivion and having Angelina Jolie's nose and Megan Fox's eyes and, you know, a, another celebrity's lips. And that's how you're going to achieve self-confidence. Like self-confidence really comes from within. And our message is that, you know, it, unless if something is an actual problem that really bothers you, that you look at it every day and it it affects you, then that's something that, yes, surgical intervention can probably really improve your quality of life. And Chandler and I are open that we've both had a procedure or two that has really been helpful for us. But again, it can dovetail quickly into something where people are getting procedures unnecessarily super young to achieve a look on social media that might not even be real to begin with when we're looking at filtered images, filtered videos. You know, we don't even know what's what's real when we're online. And so anyway, I really appreciate that. I'm curious what your opinion is on and sorry, this is kind of a long-winded question, but what your opinion is on this new trend where it seems like a lot of influencers on social media are telling us that people, all the starlets are getting rhinoplasties, blepharoplasties, ponytail lifts, mini facelifts when they're in their 20s. And it seems like you know, to be hot in 2023, you need to to be able to drop a hundred grand on plastic surgery. Um, I would love to in hear your, 20s. your thoughts on this phenomenon. <laughs> yeah, in your 20s. <laughs> Okay, it's a, it is a long-winded question, and I can I could probably go on for hours and hours and hours about this. But I think so much of what we, I mean, th this is a pill that all of us plastic surgeons have to swallow. I mean, we fought tooth and nail to get into the hardest specialty that exists. 
uh, to get into. I mean, plastic and reconstructive surgery is definitely the most competitive specialty to get into from medical school. And then we do seven years of training and then we write 50 papers and we become these academic powerhouses only to go off in the community and offer services that are certainly not essential to someone's well-being physically. So you can get mm -hmm. an appendectomy, get your appendix out, save your life. You know, you can get a hernia repair and potentially save your life. You can get your heart repaired and save your life. What do I do? I mean, it's, it, it, these, this is sort of a existential question that I think a lot of plastic surgeons face at least some point in their career that they work so hard to get to this point. What we offer is an opportunity for men and women. A lot of my patients are men, um, in their, teens more now than ever to their 80s and 90s, we, we offer some semblance of control. And it's really mm. hard, I think, for a lot of people to know that they were born with something that they can't have, you know, their nose is not what somebody else's is. Their face is not some what somebody else's is. And even when some of these people have realistic expectations, you've got to understand that we can't always meet their final result. And it doesn't always upset them when you don't. They just continue on to get more and more surgery, sort of grasping for that, that, you know, that, that ring to get that final result that they want. So as a plastic surgeon, we offer some degree in many cases of control to people who feel powerless, that they don't have control over certain things. And these are doctors, lawyers, uh, PhD students, people who have evidence of being not only sophisticated, but really achieving in their lives. And this is another way of achieving something that's hard to do. And plastic surgeons uniquely offer a tool set to help them achieve certain goals. Now, there's other patients, for example, who have small breasts and want larger breasts, where it's not as, it's not as theoretical. It's not as philosophical. We right. simply put in a one-hour procedure, help them out. But what you are sort of getting at is this new group, this sort of new school of patients who are younger, more sophisticated and aiming for something that is harder to achieve. It is like buying a fancy car. It's like, I, I'm, I'm going to share something with you guys. Um, my wife's listening to me shaking her head in the background, but I test drove a Porsche <laughs> this weekend. I, I, right now I drive a Camaro. Um, and I test drove a Porsche this weekend because I want to feel better about myself. And I went into the dealership and I saw price tags for Porsches that look kind of boring to me. They're like Honda Accords, Newport Beach at this point. Um, and they're like $250,000, $300,000. And I'm like, that's how much a nice boat costs. Like, what, what is it about this two-door car that costs? And what I'm sort of realizing by watching YouTube videos and studying, like, you know, Reddit and Quora and trying to see why these cars cost so much is that you're not paying for the car so much. Sure, it has good engineering. You're paying for a sense of feeling like you belong. Keeping up with the Joneses, yeah. you, are, you mm -hmm. have that luxury item that makes other people sort of want you. So plastic surgeons only offer so much of a final result, but what we offer more is a sense of feeling good that, mm. that you can't argue. Now, what, what, where fault can come into this equation is when providers mislead patients, when providers don't give their patients a fair argument against what they're asking for. I mean, it is our responsibility as doctors, I mean, first do no harm, to make sure that every risk and benefit of what we offer an alternative and potential complication is shared with the patient. And where I think the, the epidemic amongst plastic surgeons and, and nurse injectors occurs is we are more looking at money, dollar signs, than mm. providing patients a reasonable set of expectations.
Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you feel like there's, it's actually almost a status symbol now to look like you can afford to achieve this very tweaked look. Cause I actually hadn't even thought of that. But is that what you're saying? That people almost like driving a Porsche, having that brand name on your car, having that Chanel bag. It's a, it's a status symbol, even with plastic surgery. It is absolutely. There's no question about it. Um, I think that, that so you know, I, when I started my practice before the pandemic, most of my facelift patients, for example, were in their 50s, 60s, 70s, kind of what you'd expect. And then after the pandemic, it really sort of shifted to a younger demographic, which I love. I, I do love doing young facelifts. And we can talk about that and you can attack me all you want. I love it for different reasons. But every mm. now and then I get a certain type of patient and I, I don't know, I should come up with like an acronym of like, you know, what sort of qualifying features these patients have, but there's a certain type of patient that wants to be made looking. And my reputation, at least in this community is providing natural yeah. appearing results. That's why people send, you know, patients to me for facelifts and stuff like that. A lot of times people tell me I don't want a natural result and they'll come in with scars above wow, the eyebrow and wrinkles coming up to here and huge scars. I don't care about scars, doctor, because exactly what you're saying. I want to look like those Instagram models with a pig nose, with a big scar under my lip, with all of my teeth showing. I want to look like a blow-up doll. I want to look like I have scars everywhere because of that status symbol that you guys are referencing. I think it's a very valid point. That's shocking. I mean, I'm like, I'm like a little unwell, even hearing that that mentality exists. Um, it's so funny because it does come down to, and we'll get to specific surgery questions in a minute. I know we're kind of being more philosophical and existential right now, but it does come down to a little bit of a taste preference. My, I have a friend who was in Italy and she said she saw Chris Jenner and Diane von Furstenberg at a restaurant. And she said it was just so interesting because Diane von Furstenberg had this crazy wild hair and looked extremely natural for her age and just looked so fresh and vibrant and like so full of like she had like a glow of self-acceptance. And she said Chris Jenner looked so amazing too, but just in a very tweaked, very done way. And it was just two totally different looks. And so really it's it's just a, it, on some level, it's also just about your taste personally. So very, very but, interesting. But Lauren, again, this comes down to that sense of control and the fact that sexiness is how you feel about yourself. Mm -hmm. It's not how you look. Right. I have patients who have a revision facelift and I'll see them and I'll be like, oh my God, you look like a movie star. You look like a starlet coming in here with your, you know, your, your shawl over you and your big Chanel glasses. You come <laughs> in here, you look wonderful. Then you take five photographs, objective photographs, you know, 50 megapixel unflattering camera. And you're like, okay, well, when you look at you without any facial dynamism, no expression, you don't look much different, but for some reason, the way you're carrying yourself, you have a glow about you, a certain je ne sais yeah. pas, which can only come from self-confidence. Yeah. So maybe as a no. plastic surgeon, in many cases, we're purveyors of self-confidence and a sense mm. of feeling yeah. sexy. It's honestly so true. And I think that when you meet people who are really free in their bodies and seem really self-confident, that energy and that feeling is so attractive. And you're right. That seems to be what people um, are chasing. And so very, very interesting. I think that though people are probably like, okay, great. Ask them how young you need to be or how old you need to be to get a facelift. So I should probably get into specific questions um, and stop the pontificating. Can I talk to you about a product that you love, that Courtney loves, and that I love? Please. Early bird CBD gummies are so phenomenal, everyone. They are the perfect 
2.5 milligrams of THC and 12.5 milligrams of CBD. So this concoction, it gives you the warmest, gooeyest feeling. They have the magic formula. I love the watermelon flavor. That's my favorite. I also love using them when I know I need to get a good night's sleep and I can sleep in. You guys, we love Early Bird CBD so much. We reached out to them to see if they'd be interested in sponsoring the show because we were like, these products, these gummies, everyone needs to know about them. We're going to tell them about, about them anyway. So maybe we can get paid to do it. And honestly, we just cannot recommend them enough. We have a link in our show notes. You can go to earlybirdcbd.com. Use code POPAPOLOGIST20 for 20% off. Earlybirdcbd.com. POPAPOLOGIST20 for 20% off. Do yourself a favor. Try the gummies. They ship to all 50 states, everybody. You got to try it. Earlybirdcbd.com. Lauren, as we made our descent into New York, you know, from our beloved Guana Island trip, Mm. I got excited thinking about coming home to like my more simple routine food, like my Mm. Clean Simple Eats protein powder. Yeah, I feel like it's such a good staple because the protein powder, if you blend it with ice and water, you got vanilla frosty, essentially, if you like the Simply Vanilla. If you get chocolate brownie powder, you've got a chocolate frosty. You could do the mint chocolate chip, you got a thin mint frosty, or you just dissolve it in milk or water, and that also strangely tastes really good like chocolate milk it's a super fast easy quick snack also i just love that the ingredients are clean they're grass-fed it's 20 grams of protein for 110 calories it is just the best protein powder out there everyone go to cleansimbleeats.com and use the promo code pop apologist for 10 percent off that's pop apologist for 10 percent off cleansimbleeats.com pop apologist for 10 percent off Okay. Let's talk about facelifts in your 20s. Um, So (laughs) curious for your thoughts on people want to know, like, how old do I need to be to, if I want a facelift? You have said that facelifts when you're younger achieve different results. So would love to hear your philosophy on this. Okay. I was, I'm an East Coast guy. You you kind of went through my credentials before. I'm from Connecticut. I, uh, I studied in New York and Boston and I trained in Baltimore. So the East Coast is sort of a different sort of, I guess, environment. We're a little bit more conservative just in general than, than on the West Coast. West Coast is a lot more open. When I came out here, like words like tummy tuck and stuff like that were so silly to me. I would, I would insist on calling it abdominoplasty. When people would say non-surgical nose job, I'd be like, you mean injectable rhinoplasty? You know, I'd be almost elitist, almost <laughs> snobby about it. And the idea of facelifts in young patients to me was nothing short of greedy. Like, why would you do that to someone? Mm. First, do no harm. Same sort of spiel. And then as time went on, I would say over the first three or four years, I started seeing some of my colleagues' wives, for example, who are in their 50s, and they kind of still looked like Megan Fox. And I was like, what, what is that? What, how are you, how, you know? And then mm-hmm. the surgeon would share with me that when she was 41 or 42, I did a mini facelift or I did a facelift on her. And then you, you know, get close and you'd start to notice the scars and you'd be like, oh, geez, yes, you're right. Then there's a prominent surgeon in Beverly Hills who started putting befores and after you mentioned ponytail lift, the same guy started Chachi Keo, started putting really attractive sort of befores and afters of like Saudi princesses in their thirties. And it's like, okay, this can't be realistic. You know, this is not true. Mm-hmm. And then at some point the paradigm sort of shifted for me that the facelift is not necessarily it doesn't have to be a rejuvenation procedure. It can also mm. be a beautification procedure. So we talked mm. about control. Do we control the effects of time and space and gravity on the face? Or are we controlling other sort of inborn features like droopy, sagging jowls and things like that that don't necessarily discriminate 
on age alone. And so people can be young and have sort of a droopy face. People, for example, who had big tonsils and adenoids kind of have a, you know, a jaw that set back and a large nose and kind of look like they're mouth breathers. We call people mouth breathers. These are features that can be changed surgically by the same surgical principles that we traditionally would treat aging for. So the idea of a, a young, <laughs> should we coin the term pediatric facelift? <laughs> the idea of a pediatric facelift in this case would be not necessarily to rejuvenate a face. It would be to beautify a face. And the strategy that we employ within that facelift is different than if I did a revision facelift on a 75-year-old where mm-hmm. I have to disassemble everything in the neck and then reassemble it. A facelift in a younger patient tends to be what we call a deep plane facelift that minimally involves the neck and really focuses on tightening or elevating mid-facial structures through the deep plane exclusively. So it's all under the umbrella of facelift. It still mm-hmm. shocks people, and I still feel a little bit uncomfortable even mentioning it when I when I say I'm proud to say that I typically do facelifts under – a lot of times I'll do facelifts under 40 40 years old. I would say maybe 20% of my facelift population is under 40 years old. Uh, I would say there was one patient who came in for a consult under 30. I'm still a little bit, you know, iffy about that, but 30 to 40 is reasonable. And my average facelift patient is 45. So Hmm. the concept of, you know, beat it before it becomes a visible issue, you know, you want to stop the, stop the cracks when you're starting to see the cracks starting to form is a salient argument for doing faceless when you're younger so you can enjoy those results for longer. And then as an anecdote, if I can keep preaching, uh, yeah, I am much happier with my results the younger the patients I do. When, when somebody's in her 40s, the results are fantastic. There's less bruising, less swelling, and they last longer because the fabric that you're working with is of higher quality. Mm. So. Interesting. But we're not we're not saying that everyone in their 30s, if they can swing it, should get a facelift, right? We're saying that if you have certain symptoms, if you have if you present with certain qualities that you're looking to solve in your 30s, or you know, yeah, if you feel like your face would look better if it was lifted in your 30s, then you should you should go for it. Lauren, I think I think people should be aware that if you have a facelift in your 30s and you get a revision or something like that, you're going to look older by virtue of having had scars of a facelift and stigmata potentially of a facelift. I'm not saying that anybody in their 30s should want a facelift. I'm saying that people who are in their 30s who want a facelift for the right reasons and have friends who had a plastic surgery by a surgeon who routinely feels comfortable offering a reasonable argument for doing it are candidates Mm -hmm. for the procedure. I do Mm -hmm. not advocate doing it for anybody unless they want to do it and they're healthy. Right. Right. And what are those what are those yeah. um like objective symptoms that people that you would look for to say okay this is something I want to do. I think that's a fantastic question. So again, we've talked about bulging of the lower cheeks, sort of that droopy dog deformity where you have deep marionette lines, even though you're young. Uh, if you have mm. a narrow chin and you have sort of uh, dents on the side of your chin and your face is sort of falling over. If you have a, a, we call it the hyoid bone, that's sort of far forward. And because of that, you have that sort of Northern European lack of an angle between your neck and your chin. These are modifiable features, physical features that a facelift can address. So if there's things about your so face interesting. that you don't like, we can, within some degree of reason and predictability, modify them surgically. 
I'm not saying that everybody should do it. I'm saying if there's something that presents you from feeling comfortable, you feeling good in your skin, it's something that's bothered you since you were 12 years old, that you have a big mm-hmm. nose and you've got a, a yeah. small upper lip or a long upper lip or, you know, mm-hmm. you've got bulging here or you've got jowls, uh, double chin, things like that, lack of a neck. These are things that we can certainly help with. Yeah, I think that it, I've never considered a facelift almost in the same realm as a nose job where it's not just to, you know, make someone look younger and to reduce the appearance of wrinkles. It's to change facial structures that are genetic and so obviously present at any age. And that I, that's like, you know, completely revolu- revolutionary to me. So interesting. I don't blame you, Lauren. It took me it took me 15 years of being a plastic surgeon, honestly, to come to that same realization. I don't fault you for it. It's not, it's not intuitive. Yeah, right. Okay, I am so curious for your thoughts on lip lifts. We texted a little bit and I stumbled across this real self-review, which I feel like traumatized even reading. I feel so bad for this poor girl. She got a lip lift and now she cannot close her mouth and she has a very large gap. She looks completely deformed. It's so sad. Um, I think it's such an incredible PSA that she left that review up. And so I just, I'm curious for your thoughts on lip lifts. Are they overdone? When are they a good idea? You know, your approach to the scar and then if there's possibility of revision for this woman. So a lot of questions, but lip lifts are very trendy right now. So we need all your thoughts. They are very trendy. You're absolutely right. And um, I'm going to try to break it down in terms of an argument supporting the pros versus the cons of the lip lift procedure. So let's talk about the pros first. You know, when we study a face, when I look at you, when I look at Chan, when I look at anybody, you know, the eyes track between your eyes and your nose and your mouth, it's almost like a triangle back forth, up, up, mm-hmm. down. So this is a very important feature of the face. It's a low hanging fruit, for example, that if you modify it attractively, you can really meaningfully improve somebody's appearance if they're a candidate mm. for the procedure. It's also that's mm-hmm. one pro. So it's a high yield operation, a, a, a low hanging fruit, if you will. Then the second thing is it's a technically easy procedure to do. Mm. It's a skin only excision in many cases, sometimes muscle as well. It doesn't require much thought. I know that there are plastic surgeons in this metropolitan community that 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 historically habitually will overthink this and try to really come down to to specific parameters and this and that but the truth is if you've got a low a long upper lip or if it's curving over your teeth shorten it without overthinking it the most important aspect of this case in my opinion is making the scar minimally visible i mean everything mm-hmm. that we do creates a scar there's no question about it that's that's a definition of plastic surgery anytime you put a knife to a skin you get a scar now the pro of this procedure is that the scars, if placed strategically, thoughtfully, artistically, skillfully, are oftentimes very inconspicuous, such that a lot of celebrities that you see have had this procedure and nobody even speculates that they've had the procedure. Mm. Those are the pros. Uh, the last pro is it's one of my favorite procedures. Super high yield. It goes pairs well with a facelift in an older patient particularly. Um, mm-hmm. That's the pro. There are more cons than pros. The cons are unartistic scarring leads to very unsightly results. Inappropriate planning leads to that sort of Cupid's bow deformity where you got like the in your upper teeth. Mm-hmm, I'll do mm-hmm. that again. <laughs> <laughs> lip deformity. 
It almost, yeah. I've sort of said before, it almost looks like a poor cleft lip repair in some cases. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it's unbecoming. It's, uh, it's unattractive in many cases. If it's not planned well, or if it's overly aggressively resected. Um, and then last but not least, it's overdone. I mean, this is an easy, easily publicizable, Instagrammable before and after. I mean, it's not like a facelift where you want a natural result where people have to kind of squint and say, I think they look a little bit better in the after, but I'm not sure what was done. This is something like wham, bam, like I see a huge difference here and that gets rewarded in social media, in that sort of social media sphere. And then the surgeons who are known for it become sort of machines or powerhouses or mills where they constantly do it and become perhaps less picky or discriminatory about who is a candidate indeed for this procedure and who is not. Yeah. So that's a huge con. And the inability to close your mouth is not unique to this individual that you presented. Loss of oral competence is something that occurs when you don't appropriately plan the lip lift procedure. When you simulate the lip lift procedure and and you try to imagine what you're going to do, there are cues, for example, on your chin that you can see your mentalis muscle trying to close your mouth and maintain oral competence. If you resect more and your chin is trying to compensate, that is an early cue that you're going to be unable to close your mouth after the procedure. Oh, wow. And if you don't pair aggressive central resection with a corner lip lift, then you get that sort of V deformity. Some of the unhappiest patients I've seen have had lip lifts elsewhere, mind you. I tend to be conservative. My whole mantra is it's better to undercorrect than to overcorrect always. Um, And I love, love, love the procedure, but it is way, way way too commonly performed because it is a cash cow. I mean, you charge a lot of money for this popular procedure that takes 30 to 45 minutes under local anesthesia only. And I think that it's one of those things where it's kind of high risk can be high reward if it's done super well, obviously, of course, but also can be high risk and be devastating for people that it doesn't go well with. And so it's something that people should be super, super cautious about. And it's, it's one of those, I think it's one of those things where it's like, only maybe consider this if this has been an insecurity of yours before you knew to look for it as an insecurity. I almost feel like having a longer length between your nose and your lips. 10 years ago, no one even knew that was a problem unless it was a real, it was really bad on them and they knew and they, you know, were insecure about it. But as we've, as or Instagram Lauren, faces, if you're going trendier, in for a yeah. consult and you don't actually talk to the doctor, you're talking to a consultant primarily who's scheduling yeah. surgery, run away. Interesting. Run away. You want to talk to a doctor. You want to look that doctor yeah. in the eyes and you want to say, I can't swear on your podcast. Doctor, are you going to F me up or not? <laughs> Is there any hope for this girl who has this crazy gap between her lips? Where she, and it was crazy to hear her talk about it where she said that like her mouth is always dry. She can't go swimming because water goes into her lungs, all this stuff. Can you revise a lip lift if it's done incorrectly and lengthen that area? Yes. But can I? Oh, you, you can. Something? How long? Yeah. How long has it been since her lip lift? I think over a year. Because the pictures that you showed me, I saw a lot of lip swelling. Could it be maybe because there's fillers in there, or it could have been an early post-operative photo. I think if it's over a year, you're getting to your final result, and at that point, surgical revision is warranted, not necessarily okay. the tincture of time. 
which usually right. corrects a lot of these issues because if when you're resecting skin only, skin is the most, it's the weakest organ. I mean, it can, it can stretch out again with, there are some people who have eyelid surgery three or four times in their lifetime because skin is kind of weak. So when swelling goes down, skin stretches a little bit and forgives and the scar kind of relaxes a little bit. A lot of times that's all it takes. If a, if a year has passed and those pictures that you're showing me that you showed me before are kind of relevant to the one year outcome, then you do consider surgical revision. But a lot of surgical revision requires recruiting skin from the outside and bringing it back down or mm. matching it by doing a corner lip lift. Or I've seen in one case in my own practice, I didn't do it. I, I just saw the patient. She had a skin graft placed, basically opened back up and a skin graft placed where the skin was previously resected. So it did correct the issues, but in exchange for additional scarring, sometimes you mm -hmm. can't truly get right. back what you've lost. So yeah, there are right. strategies at an important expense. Yeah. So at a most likely a cosmetic expense. Sorry. I, I, yeah. I'm probably belaboring this very niche question too long. Chandler, it's, what, what did good. you have? It's, a it's, question a, it's on? important. If, if our mission in life was to bring, yeah. bring the lip lift into question, I think we were put on this earth for a good reason. <laughs> okay. That that's an indictment if I've ever heard one. So worthy pontification. I think we should double click a little bit into, you know, your comment about if you're only meeting with a consultant, not a doctor. One of the questions we got, which I think is just so helpful for everyone is what should they look for when they are choosing a plastic surgeon? You know, when you go into Google and search rhinoplasty, mm -hmm. my area, Montclair, New Jersey or whatever, what questions do you need to ask then when you go into the consultation? How do you go in as like an informed consumer? That's a really, really hard question because the first thing that I would suggest off the cuff is look at their befores and afters, make sure that they have a huge gallery. But then that's going to open the whole door to the potential for manipulation of photos or at the very least manipulation of lighting to make photos mm -hmm. more attractive or are patients sending selfies that they can easily modify or is the lighting more flattering or are they wearing makeup? All of these things bring into the question the reality of unbelievable before and afters, which is probably one of the best ways to, you know, qualify your plastic surgeon. Um, the other thing is if there's 500 rhinoplasty befores and afters, you've got to ask yourself, is your plastic surgeon putting his patient's privacy first or her, her patient privacy first, or is he or mm. she putting their own interests first? I mean, I will tell you of all I do, my practice is largely facial, probably 80% facial. Um, and I would say, we have a very, very low threshold to censor any befores and afters in our patient practice if there's any inclination that they feel uncomfortable. So providing large volumes of befores and afters is the best way if you could trust the photos and if you're confident that the patients feel comfortable putting their face forward like this. I mean, a lot of times you choose a plastic surgeon because you don't want the world to know that you've had something done. You want to look naturally beautiful. Right. The other thing is... I guess that's, that's, that's the biggest thing. So uh, evidence of experience, evidence of results that you like the best is if you've had a friend who had it done and then they, you know, you can see their results directly in real mm -hmm. life, dynamically in the same lighting, and you can make a decision for yourself. Most patients don't have that luxury. And so I think before and afters is important. Board certification is certainly important too. Um, there's a lot mm -hmm. of dermatologists who do plastic surgery these days. There's pediatricians, emergency room doctors, family practice doctors, dentists, um, who are legally allowed to do this procedure. So you've got to assess qualifications. And I think one good objective way to do that is to critically study befores and afters to get some word of mouth referral from the community to look at the qualifications. I, I'm guilty myself of having these like top 10 
doctor's plaques all over my office. I mean, this is something that you can pay for. I hate to say it, but I mean, they come to me and they say, oh, yeah. 45 bucks, you get a plaque. So when you're studying a potential surgeon's qualifications, look for board certification, look for academic yeah. pedigree, look for papers they've written, look for happy patients. Reviews are pretty good. I mean, I think Yelp and Google and stuff like that are getting better at at least screening, uh, obviously fake or manipulated reviews. One of my friends said, look at the glass door ratings because you can get a really good sense on how a doctor treats his staff. But then the counter argument to that is who cares how a doctor treats his staff? Yeah. You want a result. You want a safe doctor, mm -hmm. not a friend. I mean, you want a friend. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so there, there's just so many arguments and counter arguments that my head would spin trying to give you an answer. I think the je ne sais pas, that gestalt, that sort of feeling you get when you see somebody with some degree of of evidence of experience and compassion and, and a track record of good care is what it takes. And obviously a competitive price point. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting. I think it can be such the wild west. I know that, um, I at one point was considering a procedure and I was, you know, looking at a doctor's real self reviews and a one of his real self or a couple were just deleted overnight and they were negative reviews. And so I think some of these review sites can be manipulated and, you know, people can have their reviews taken off. Do you know our Google reviews? Can you, you know, reach out to the gods at Google and have those deleted or are those like are those like the blockchain? Like they're just set in stone once people <laughs> put them up. That's a really good question. I mean, I've, I've personally had issues with Google reviews that my patients write me five star reviews and they're really happy. And then I, I and then I have to have that awkward conversation a week or two later. Like, I don't, I, I didn't see it. Sorry. I thank you for writing that. <laughs> so I think Google is very straight. We'll take things down. Um, I don't know what their criteria or parameters to remove yeah. these are on their own, even if they're five star reviews without showing evidence of them. Mm -hmm. Um, other than like maybe, yeah, there's. I don't think there's any like reviews that are not record. I think it's a Yelp thing. Knock on wood, I haven't had to have a. Sorry, I shook the whole. That was not an earthquake. That was me. <laughs> I, I haven't had a Yelp review that I've I've had to have removed. Um, or a Google review. Yelp reviews. I mean, we've had it one or two, for example, that seem to come from somebody who's not in our practice, and we flag them and we say this is not mm. somebody who's in our practice. It's probably a competitor yeah. or somebody like that who has some degree of animosity, and they'll take them off, but they'll still be there. There's still, there's yeah. still a shadow or a ghost that you can see that. I think one of the telltale signs I was once told about, and I saw this in a local oculoplastic surgeon's reviews where, and, and, and another surgeon in Beverly Hills, where you get, you have 30 reviews, for example, on Yelp, yet the 153 of them are not recommended. So when you have that sort of dichotomy or the verbiage, for example, of the reviews, Dr. So-and-so is wonderful. Dr. So-and-so, and it's the same first sentence. Right. With yeah, generic. There are ways if you want to be a sleuth and you want to sort of deep dive mm -hmm. into it that you can get a sense of whether or not there's funny business going on. Yeah, I think that's true. And also on on the site Real Self, you can message people who have left reviews. And that's a way I've that's learned cool. that sometimes people who have written positive reviews might actually have had a different experience because they but they don't want to amend their review because they're hoping for a revision. It's a very murky territory. Obviously, doctors can, can some doctors can manipulate their before and afters. So I think ultimately it does come down to doing as much research as you can and then relying on your gut and your instinct. And if you trust this person, you know, are right. they cramming five rhinoplasties into a day or are they taking their time with their patients? Stuff like that can, I think, provide, you know, good, uh, good instincts on who to trust. 
Lauren, that's a fantastic point. And, you know, I, I, the other thing I just wanted to say that's difficult about reviews is if I were to be so honest and open with you again today, some of my favorite results that I've obtained on patients, I can think of one or two patients who have actually been unhappy. And so these favorite results are patients who have suffered complications are thrilled, the happiest patients in my practice because of the level of compassion I provided in correcting that. So objective Mm. outcomes and subjective reviews do not always align, but on average over time, it's about getting a certain sense for somebody. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Lauren, the wall behind you, it's quite barren. What's going on there? (laughs) You know what? I find getting things framed to be very stressful. And so I've just never done it. I don't basically have anything framed in my home. And it's sad for me. It's very sad, which is why we are so lucky to be sponsored by Framebridge right now. Yes, I am so excited to correct this wrong in my life. What's so great about Framebridge is for other people also intimidated by a gallery wall, if you go on their website, you can just very quickly, easily upload like five photos or whatever it is, and they will send you different dimensioned cube frames, beautiful, sleek, modern, so you can just hang your gallery wall and it's good to go. They make it very easy on a lay person like yourself. Everyone, see why Framebridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or a local Framebridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's framebridge.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, question on some celebrities. So if we're looking at like a Bella Hadid or an Adriana Lima or Jennifer Lawrence, right? Um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of rumors out there that Jennifer Lawrence has just had a ton of work done, although she says she hasn't. Bella Hadid, she says she hasn't either, but she looks dramatically different from when she was younger. Curious to your thoughts on these celebrities. Yeah, and I've actually produced YouTube videos on the Jennifer Lawrence and Bella Hadid topics, both of which have inspired ire amongst the YouTube community who don't agree Mm. with my opinion. So I'm going to just preface this by saying my response to your question is going to be unpopular with your viewers, but I'm going to say it anyway, because it's my opinion. Okay. I jokingly call it Zelkin's rule in my YouTube videos (laughs) about Jennifer Lawrence and Bella Hadid specifically. Okay. And Zelkin's rule is, If a celebrity denies plastic surgery, one, and two, there's no objective evidence like scars that they've had plastic surgery, then you got to give that celebrity credit back off and assume if you are so, if you're so compelled to find out the truth, just back off. They didn't have plastic surgery. If there's no scars for it and they're saying they didn't have plastic surgery, who are you to say that they did? It's unfair. Now, the counter argument to that is that these celebrities uh, are are held to a, a different standard than the rest of the 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 popular the population or community at large because they are the ones who are selling us products. They're selling us lifestyle cues. They're the ones mm-hmm. that we deserve to know what they have done. So, in our, our attempt to achieve it, we know what what tools are available to us too. But at the same time. 
These are people's daughters, moms, sisters, cousins, loved ones, family members. These are human beings. And if you mm-hmm. can't prove one way or the other with an operative note or somebody who worked in a clinic and had and, and assisted that surgery, that would be a breach of HIPAA violations, by the way, or there's no scar to show for it. And they're saying adamantly that they didn't, they didn't have plastic surgery, period. Jennifer Lawrence did not have plastic surgery. She's an attractive woman who has lost a little weight in her face as she aged. She's got beautiful eyes. She still has hooding of her eyes, but it's the makeup. She admits it herself. She's had fillers and stuff around her mouth. It's the makeup that makes her magical. And you can look at photos from way back when to now, and there are no meaningful substantive differences. Um, this is, my opinion is in stark contrast to like yeah. Lori Hill and other people like that uh, who think that I'm just either they're my patients and I'm protecting them or I'm just <laughs> so out of touch that like yeah. who am I? As a, don't go to Zelkin because he's, he's just he, – he thinks nobody had plastic surgery. The truth is we've got to treat everybody like a human, celebrity or not, period. End of story. I love that. I think it's a great philosophy, especially with someone like Jennifer Lawrence, who to me just looks like minimally different. So I completely agree. But what about celebrities like Bella Hadid, where there's an extreme difference? And these are celebrities that, you know, a lot of really young people are looking up to and maybe becoming fixated on their own image because they see these celebrities so dramatically changing their faces. What's your, what is your thought about Celebrities like that. A couple things. Bella Hadid and specifically had rhinoplasty. All right? I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to deny it. There's evidence. You look at her nose and you can say she's got an open roof deformity. Not only did she have rhinoplasty, she didn't have a beautifully executed rhinoplasty. So there is evidence mm. that I can say that. Okay. So if she denies it, uh, you know, we're, we're looking at something obvious here. Right. The other thing is about her eyes and her mid face. I mean, she's lost a lot of weight. People, when they show comparative photos of Bella Hadid are showing a prepubescent Bella Hadid versus a postpubescent, you know, 30 something Bella Hadid. The face changes in that period of time. There's yeah. no question about it. Um, so I do think that there's some degree of surgical change seen in her, uh, but not necessarily a facelift or all of this $500,000 of procedures that's proposed. People don't understand. People are at least significantly underestimate the importance of makeup and lighting and also people don't embrace the possibility of photoshopping and filtering, which can even occur in real time on live TV. So uh, that can happen in real time on live TV. It happened. People can Kim Kardashian. There was something on YouTube. I saw where she was like on some Jimmy Kim, some live TV show. And when she turned her face, you can see her face snap back into a certain position. That was For a live real. Filter. Google it. No. Yeah. That, so that is wild everything's fake everything's fake besides yeah, you chan and me where we're, we're <laughs> i also want to shout out certain like there the are la- other the last accounts, real things in this world there are other yeah. accounts that i've recently discovered on instagram that mm-hmm. if you don't follow you should there's a woman in new york named the beauty broker i'm sure you guys are like yeah i've heard of her everybody's yes. heard of her i just yeah. recently discovered her and like i started following her last week and i love the message she is trying to mm-hmm. she she conveys her own personal opinions and qualifies to them as these are my opinions and she mm-hmm. is a wonderful source of light logic and things like that that you know at first you want to like, uh, i don't want to watch this stuff like give me a break the more i follow her the more i'm like this is a rare voice of reason in this confusing sea of marketing. Well, and I think that with a beauty broker, I feel like, you know, she might charge $250 for you to send in photos and she can give you some advice, right? And give you some surgeons names who she recommends and has vetted. That's such money well spent in my opinion, because you're saving yourself 
from tens of hours potentially of researching doctors. So I think experts like that are like way more needed right now, given just how much information is out there to wade through. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely correct. I think um, what sort of sold me on her was there's a surgeon in Argentina that I particularly like his work, and I feel that he and I have a similar style. This is like a random guy halfway across the world that I had one patient in common with who spoke highly of him and said that his personality and mine sort of aligned. And I looked at her facelift results. She was in her 40s. I'm like, this is a good facelift. Like, I want to ner- learn more about this guy. And then when I started following Beauty Broker, I see that she also follows this guy. And I asked her specifically, I said, do, do you send patients to this guy? She goes, yeah, he's great. I'm like, okay, she is a qualified provider. And now, yeah. I don't know who else she yeah. sends to. I think it's pretty under wraps. But I think that, you know, again, you've got to look for evidence of these things. You've got to find... You can't just trust any one source. It's it's tiresome. And plastic surgery, even in the best of hands, is a risk. I think right. the most brilliant plastic surgeons have the craziest results, like bad results from time to time. It's possible. Yeah. No matter who you go right. to. Right. It's always no a risk. No matter how your friend's experience was, there is mm-hmm. always the possibility of cosmetic dissatisfaction and complications. Okay. And a few more questions from our listeners. So a lot of people want to know, just kind of how to approach procedures when it comes to having kids, you know, should they wait until they're fully done having kids to get their breasts done, to get a tummy tuck, to, to get body procedures? What are your thoughts on that? That's a great question. I mean, again, this is, there's going to be, there's, there's 17 chapters in, in my textbook of an answer to this question, but chapter four, page 97 (laughs) is going to tell you that, Part of the courtship process is the conveying a sense of sex- sexiness and self-confidence. That's how you're going to find your mate in many cases. So the idea of getting plastic surgery, breast augmentation, for example, or tummy tuck if you've lost weight as part of this journey, or a facelift or fillers to your face or anything is part of the courtship process. And by definition, if you're courting somebody and you're a virgin, and this is pre-having kids. This is when you're a nulliparous woman or, or a man, mm-hmm. for example. But I think your question is is targeted towards women specifically. Um, so yeah, there is going to be an argument in support of doing prenatal surgery. Obviously, not within a year or two of your planned conception. Um, but mm-hmm. these are operating like a tummy tuck, for example, or breast aug have been proven clearly to be safe and not increase mm-hmm. the risk of having insufficient breast milk and or having miscarriage because you don't have the laxity of your abdomen to, mm. uh, to compensate for the expanding uterus. That's the argument for doing it before the easier argument is for doing it afterwards. I mean, after you've had kids, the hormonal changes sort of wreak havoc on your face. And that's an argument for why Jennifer, Jennifer Lawrence's face has changed. I mean, estrogen, things like that cause laxity of ligaments by definition. Interesting. Wow. And so having a splayed abdominal wall is a manifestation in many cases of having had children. Um, we call it rectus diastasis when your six pack ma- muscles look less like a sideways equal sign and more like parentheses and you get a pot belly and things like that. You also have stretched uh, abdominal skin. Some people get stretch marks and some people get deflated breasts after their milk, you know, after, after they've breastfed their kids and, and you lose some of that volume. And so these operations are traditionally catered towards moms, hence mommy makeover and can safely be done outside of the breastfeeding window. That's chapter seven. (laughs) What if you've had one kid and you're kind of, I think some, maybe this person also is wondering, you know, if you're between pregnancies, 
your courtship has concluded, you have your partner, but you know, you want to rejuvenate, but you also are like, well, I still, you know, I'm staring down the barrel at a few more pregnancies as well. How to approach that? Talk to your plastic surgeon. I mean, this, this okay. is when the, when the questions become individual. less of a global answer and more of a unique yeah. question answer session of like, really, what are your unique goals and what are your desires? What does your anatomy look like? Reasonably, yeah. what kind of change can I expect to obtain and achieve? When do you plan on having kids? I can't answer your question at all, Lauren, without knowing those answers and neither yeah. should any plastic surgeon. And again, this underlies my question about, you know, I, I, I know that a lot of practices will not have a plastic surgeon see you for a consultation. If you're not talking to your plastic surgeon, you're talking to a salesperson. Mm, yeah, such a good point. Now, you're looking, yeah. Can I go back to my Porsche analogy? I'm, please, not, please. I'm not buying a Porsche, by the way. My wife's not listening. I'm not buying <laughs> oh, a Porsche. Oh, no. Okay, I'm a proud Camaro driver. Very proud American. <laughs> I will say, when I go into a Porsche dealership, every salesman in there doesn't give it blank about my financial status, the fact that I have two girls that I'm sending to private school, the fact that I'm trying to build a practice in a sort of economic-ish downturn, even though the stock market looks good, they want to sell me the car and I yeah. want them to make me buy the car. I don't right. want them to give me any reason. Yeah. But that's what I want. That's not what I need. What I need is an accountant, not a salesperson in there mm, telling right. me why I shouldn't buy the car. And so when you're going to a practice and you're not seeing sitting face to face with a plastic surgeon and looking at, at that person, fellow humans, a compassionate doctor with a patient mm -hmm. who's in a vulnerable position, then you are robbing yourself of that angel on your other shoulder. Inter I mean, but how hard is it to find a doctor? Like, realistically, how hard is it to find a doctor who will turn you away? Because I feel like even oh the I second think, floor you know, of sixteen yeah. seventeen Westcliff Drive, Suite two hundred five. I would say <laughs> ten to fifteen percent of my patients away. So really? I think reasonable yeah. doctors who are not financially greedy or in, in dire need of money will mm -hmm. will turn patients away really? if the patients will not get the outcome that they want or they have yeah. unrealistic expectations. Yeah. Um, or if you think that it's you're not going to achieve a result. I mean, if you operate on those patients, I, I've got to give my community the benefit of the doubt. There are some bad seeds. Don't get me wrong. I think most patients, at least in Newport Beach, are going to turn every patient away who's either not a candidate or has unrealistic expectations. Really? We call okay. them red flag mm. patients. They're yeah. not going to be happy. They're going to make your yeah. life miserable. We don't want that. Right. Yeah. yeah. So you don't want to deal I, with the, the aftermath. So give, 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 us, give us a little bit more credit there. But- I will say that the whole overseas plastic surgery industry is different. Mm. You lack that accountability. You go to Turkey, you go to, you know, Thailand, you go to Mexico, and these are doctors who are going to see you once and once only. And if there's a problem, yeah. you can go to an American yeah, right. plastic surgeon and pay a lot more to fix it. And reviews are not as salient down there because you're going to save money, not because you want a certain result. And I think that's when it be perhaps becomes harder to realistically find somebody who is willing to say no. Mm hmm. Okay. No, I think that's, that's such a good point. And it's so true. Like if you're a successful professional, you don't want an unhappy customer making your life miserable, even if you can make the sale. So I think that's, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, one thing though, kind of piggybacking off this is talking about the Turkish plastic surgeons, very common for a lot of people have a very specific nose job that they get in Turkey, this very tight, upturned princess nose. I was on your YouTube channel. You have some controversial thoughts about this that I, I would love for you to share. Yeah, I, I do. 
Um, I, I think a lot about all of these things. I think that that upturn knows a lot of what I see in terms of the plague is on table results. You see a lot of noses that are small and adorable with this backlit black screen and this sharp, sharp contrast between this white, untouched, not bloody skin and this back screen, and it looks elegant. And you compare that to this big hook nose before, and you say, this surgeon is a master. But anybody mm -hmm. who is an expert in rhinoplasty surgery, and I'd like to consider myself amongst those ranks, knows that what you achieve on the table is easily manipulable. Like Plato, you can put your thumb down if you take the whole nose framework wow. off yeah. and shape the nose you want, take a picture, don't let it swell, and then put it on your Instagram. It it should be and can be a red flag to certain patients if the before and afters are on table real time results and not long term meaning 12 months or later. Yeah. To make yeah. the nose look cute and Barbie dollish, you are by definition destabilizing the framework and you will have a collapse in five to 10 years. <gasps> so that's putting yourself first. You know, you've got yeah. the, the art of rhinoplasty is taking out enough to get a meaningful change, but leaving enough behind that the result is stable. This is particularly salient amongst the Asian and Central American Hispanic populations where the skin is thicker and less forgiving. That is such a good tip because I do consider myself to be a plastic surgery Instagram expert. And when I'm looking <laughs> at uh, accounts and I had, I had never heard of that. And that's, I mean, I see so many before and afters on don't, You table. don't think about it. Well, you don't yeah, think about and, it. Nobody yeah. thinks about these things. My nurse is like, take an after, take an after. Like every time I do a rhinoplasty, I'm like, no, it's, it's meaningless. Right? Yeah. Good for you. It's, it's funny that you say that because I had a rhinoplasty when I was younger and I remember when I, when they took off the guard or whatever that you take off three days or so after, I don't remember, or a week. And, uh, and my nose looked so different. Like it was actually a little bit jarring and I didn't love it at first. Then it did a year later, a year later, it was like much more settled, much more like sleek and perfect. And it's just like the, the results after, you know, the first week or whatever, first few days are not, you know, indicative of what your nose will actually look like. No. And in fact, I, on my Instagram page, I actually have, I, I did my first after, after is usually befores and afters, but I did a rhinoplasty after, after one month versus one year. And you can really see the difference. And yeah. people who've had rhinoplasty need to see that kind of thing to give them peace of mind that just because mm -hmm. their nose is in a Barbie nose at one month doesn't mean that's yeah. the final result. Right. Well, they even tell you too, you know, for the first year, be so careful that nobody knocks your nose or anything, or you don't have like like I remember I had like a niece who kind of knocked my nose and it caused me so much distress because I was like, oh my gosh, am I going to permanently, you know, it's, it's still very malleable and like, you know, could be changed. But a lot of people are very curious and want to know your thoughts on fillers and the kind of way that fillers are being used to give people, you know, jaw lines and chins and there's this one Australian doctor who has shown MRIs of patients with filler that's 10, 15 years old, that it doesn't actually just dissolve over time. It moves, it migrates, all that. So we'd love your thoughts on, on filler. Okay. I've definitely thought a lot about filler. Filler is a, is a, it's a, certainly a cornerstone of the plastic surgery uh, practice. I, I employ a full-time nurse injector uh, who is, does, you know, does our fillers for us. If I didn't believe in it, I wouldn't employ her. Fillers do things that surgery can't do. Fillers have luxuries that surgery can't afford. Fillers are everywhere. I mean, they're relatively safe uh, and they are relatively affordable, although the prices are getting higher and higher. For plastic surgeons and for patients alike, I mean, 50 to 60% of the price of filler is what we spend on the product. 
So, I mean, our overhead for those procedures are not very high. Hence, we have to do a lot of the procedures. So I'm a strong believer in it. I think nothing beats augmentation of the lips, for example, like filler. I think filler is mm. great in the chin or jawline to give you a sense of what an implant might do or to be a, a final permanent result. The problem is when you have so many unregulated or at least underregulated med spas out there and other clinics and facilities um, with or without uh, approved products uh, injecting, if you don't know how to do surgery, you're not qualified to do surgery, and all you have is a syringe with filler, it's the old adage of if all you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. Mm. And you think you can do everything with this syringe. You can give somebody a liquid facelift or a liquid rhinoplasty. And I use like a mock-up of, of Barbara Streisand's nose, for example. Like if you look at her nose really close and you were to fill in the radix and the tip with filler, you can give Barbara Streisand a great nose zoomed in with filler alone. But then once you zoom out, her nose looks like the sail of a yacht. It's huge on mm. her face. You've lost yeah. that sense of harmony. She needs reduction, not augmentation. Mm. So the lack of scrupulous providers consistently uh, mm. leads to this, again, this sort of uh, plague of overuse of fillers. And uh, we had a med spa in our, our practice seven, six or seven years ago that would routinely do 10 syringes of filler on some a young woman's face and give them a huge jaw and a huge chin. You do that enough. Not only does your brain accept this new normal as a baseline result, you keep wanting to get more and more, but even if you don't maintain the fillers every one to two years, as the manufacturers suggest, you will have some degree of permanence. These are not temporary. There's no mm -hmm. question about it. This hyaluronic acid stays in one way or another for eternity. Wow. Okay. It tends to go down over time. That coupled with your brain's perception of it's gone down because I'm used to it leads to this slippery slope of overuse. Mm, uh, Kate Case right, and like I jokingly called this filler fatigue years ago. Yeah, it's this filler fatigue. You get this sort of pillow face over time that not only makes you look funny, but there are also anatomic changes such as lymphatic obstruction. Lymphatics are like if I got a black eye and I had a swollen shut, eventually that swelling is going to track down into my neck, into my collarbone, back into my heart through these lymphatic channels. The more you start injecting stuff in there and getting scar tissue and inflammation, you are permanently disrupting these lymphatic channels and you will get, if not filler that's remnant, you will get persistent swelling or discoloration for eternity. So wow. reliance exclusively on fillers is a dangerous slippery slope. Even though I like fillers as a whole, it needs to be done thoughtfully, just like surgery. It needs to be done thoughtfully, but you did say that it can give, even for like a jawline or a chin, permanent results. So what does that require? Let's say someone does want, you know, to do chin augmentation with filler. How do they create a long-term treatment plan to maintain the results without going overboard? So I don't think it gives permanent results. So say you get your chin and your, oh, your jawline okay. done. No, not routinely. Yeah. I mean, it does go down. I'm saying there's some degree of permanence that you can't avoid. Gotcha, there is okay. some degree of residual filler or or evidence of having filler that will not go away over time. Mm. And can when you always doing, just get it dissolved? You can always. So if you use something called high, uh, hyaluronic acid specifically, um, that's your like your Velvella's, Velours, uh, Juvederms, Restylane's. Those are something that you can put an antidote in and somewhat dissolve. I mean, if you had a, a splurge, splooge of hyaluronic acid <laughs> filler on the table and you got a drop of this hyaluronic base and you dropped it on it, you would watch it just wash away. The problem mm. is in practice, 
you don't know, especially if somebody's gone getting filler elsewhere, you don't know where that filler specifically is. You don't have an MRI. You don't have 3D vision into that face. You can't specifically target that antidote exactly where it is. You do your best and you get some degree of improvement. So that is yeah. one of the limitations of hyaluronidase. You can't rely on that to totally reverse it if you must. What we do in our practice, and again, I'm sorry for soapboxing this right now. What we do in our practice is we take photos. And I think photos will give you an objective, uh, objective assessment of change because that mm-hmm. will basically circumvent the body's own way of normalizing how you look. And you can mm. study yourself right after treatment versus a year later. And you can make a smart decision. Do I need a half treatment, full treatment, no treatment mm-hmm. uh, based on objective data? Interesting. Okay. I have one more filler question. Filler in the nose, filler in the under eyes. Recommend or don't recommend? Oh, yeah. That's a very good question. Um, filler in the nose and under eyes. So first of all, in terms of my asterisk, you know, black box warning are two of the riskiest areas to put filler in for blindness. Okay. Mm -hmm. Blindness is a potential uh, complication, a dreaded complication, but it is very low, but it's not a 0% chance. And doing it around the eyes, the glabella region, you know, upper eyelid where we sometimes will volumize up here, under eyes, and even the nose has a chance of going backwards through a vein and forward through an artery into your retina (laughs) causing blindness, which is permanent. Terrifying. Terrifying. Ignoring that black box, low, but not zero warning. Um, I think that fillers to the nose are great. Honestly, I think it's a great way of just touching up a rhinoplasty result. It's a great way if you need a little enhancement. If you're an Asian patient and you lack a bridge of your nose and you want more definition, you want that kind of K-pop star, it's a great way of non-surgically achieving those results. And if you maintain it year over year or whatever, you know, based on photos, then you're going to have a great non-surgical result. The problem is in the Western population, it's typically, rhinoplasty is typically reductive in nature, or at the very least, taking away from one area and adding to another to get an optimal result. So there are uses for it. For example, to give the tip a little bit of projection or to soften some of these, these smile lines by volumizing this triangle right here. Things like that are a really good use for fillers. Uh, you can even sh- reposition a nose a little bit. If you, put, if you put filler behind one nostril, you can actually push the nose a little bit to the other direction. Um, mm. It's a great use for it, but it needs to be done sparingly and thoughtfully by a very seasoned expert who is aware of the potential complications and how to eliminate those complications if they were to occur. Uh, The under eyes is similar. I think we offer it in our practice. My nurse specifically defers to me for under eye and nose filler because of the increased risk profile. Uh, Fat grafting is really great for the under eyes. We like that. A lot of people aren't ready to jump into the surgery game. So we will do filler first. When we do filler in the under eyes, we specifically use a softer uh, product, a softer medium that absorbs some water. And we use a cannula to inject it to minimize the risk of getting into a blood vessel. We sort of pepper it in sparingly and we'll follow the patient over time. Um, if you inject too close to the skin, and you've seen this before, you probably just didn't know what you were looking at, you can get a blue bleb under the eye. You can get this sausage roll that has this permanent disfiguring bluest discoloration. It's called a Tyndall effect, um, which can be dreadful. It's permanent forever? I, I, I can think of two patients that have had it for like six years, despite not having fillers, wow. trying to dissolve it, and even doing fat graft, still have it. So it And this is just permanent. from a reaction underneath the surface of your skin for the same reason the sky and the ocean are blue if you inject this clear volume too close to the skin the way the light refracts on it is it gives a bluish reflex 
and it's called a Tyndall effect. You get a blue oh bleb gosh. under your eye if it's done too superficially. So if you're going to somebody who's not an expert or not seasoned in this technique or using a needle too close to the surface of the skin, you specifically run a higher risk of having this Tyndall uh, effect, you know, with this deformity or having blebs or sort of discolorations under your eye. Yes. That is crazy. I've never heard about that before. And that is such a, I guess, like you say, there's, you know, this stuff is offered everywhere. People are, people are doing it with no credentials. And so that's something I think to be so aware of. I got a little filler in my under eye when I was 25. And I remember I, I did like another consult with this woman who did it. And later I was like, oh, I didn't even know there was a risk of blindness when I did it. I don't think I would ever do it again, knowing that now. And she she was just like, oh, there is? Like, I don't I don't think there's much risk oh at gosh. all. And so I think that maybe a good way to, you know, talk to practitioners is to ask them what their risks are. See what they'll disclose to you as the risks. And if they don't mention these things, maybe that's something they don't know about and they're not the right person to be putting a needle next to your face. It Very all goes crazy. back to choosing an accountant, not a salesman, a car salesman. Yes. Right? You want somebody who is thoughtful, balanced, warns you, doesn't necessarily encourage you to do what your impulses are pushing you to do. You want a, you want an angel on your shoulder, not necessarily, mm -hmm. devil, even though the devil feels good. Right. <laughs> Question, uh, speaking kind of about the devil, um, not really, but you know, there's so many things that are like minimally invasive, like threads, um, the things that are more trendy that are obviously don't require surgery. Curious if you highly recommend any of them or, you know, have any warnings about them. We have about six boxes of fresh threads in our in our back that we haven't used in years because a nurse practitioner who worked for my practice at the time insisted on it. We just we were all trained on it. It's just not something that conveys long term good results in terms of lift. Okay. Yeah. These these threads can basically get reuptaken by your body, absorbed, dissolved, metabolized by your body, and converted to scar tissue, which by definition will improve your skin quality and the 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 tension, the 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 laxity of your skin. So there are some good beneficial effects, but that pull effect that you're waiting for, it's gonna go away in two weeks. And again, this is something that our practice just doesn't want it. We don't want to deal with unhappy patients in two weeks. We don't want yeah. to promise something when we offer a more meaningful and definitive uh, solution or alternative mm -hmm. i do with i do brow lifts i do brow lifts and aggressively release every single ligament under the, around the eye and 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 the lateral orbit this rim and then cut out skin and then pull it and and over time the results are still subtle who's to say mm -hmm. that you put a barbed wire in and you pull it like this that dissolves and all <laughs> of a sudden that's going to be any better just you got to put things in perspective uh, yeah. i think the threads are yeah, a great sure. adjunct to surgery even potentially but it is not a standalone procedure and if you, yeah. if you want to, if you go to a provider who's good at it and has a track record, I'm thinking of some lady named like Francine here in Newport Beach. She's got a huge track record, but people love her. If you go to them and you like it and you have reasonable expectations about outcomes, go for it. You know, I don't think it's going to hurt you if it's done expertly, but it potentially could. You got to be aware of that. You got to also be aware of the limitations. Mm-hmm. Curious for your thoughts on lasers, Morpheus 8. There's a, an influencer who's really popular who has millions of followers and she did more PSA and got permanent scars on her forehead, like track marks essentially from the procedure. So do you have any thoughts on, on Morpheus and the popular lasers like Fraxel and Clear and Brilliant and all that? Uh, I do. 
and uh, we ha- we also offer Morpheus, so I'm I'm particularly uh, compelled to give you a pretty qualified answer to this question. Uh, it's unfortunate for that patient, and you say she has permanent disfigurement, but Morpheus has only been around for so many years, so we don't know if it's going to be permanent yet. But it, yeah. it, it sounds like it's longstanding disfi- disfigurement, which is really unfortunate. She wouldn't be alone in that. It does happen. It can't happen. Um, I think the company in mode is really good at sort of hiding these negative results under the rug a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I do think that they occur. Uh, as a rule of thumb, compared to CO2 laser resurfacing, Morpheus 8 tends to be safer in our hands. Uh, we tend to use it on patients who we have concerns of hyperpigmentation or those sort of track mark changes that you were talking about. So it's ironic that she suffered that complication. Yeah. In patients of color, uh, Asian patients uh, and Hispanic patients and, and Mediterranean sort of ethnicity, uh, we tend to use uh, three treatments of, C- of Morpheus 8 versus one CO2 laser to achieve ideally a similar result. I still think Morpheus 8 is a weaker product overall, um, but mm. I think it's safer in people who have risk of hyperpigmentation. Of course, complications can occur on anyone. And it sounds mm-hmm. like you, you yeah. identified an influencer that this happened to. I think this influencer owes it to the community to be vocal, as she already has been about her results, mm-hmm. but it also behooves the community to you know, critically assess her outcome. I mean, how long yeah. really has it been? Have things been tried uh, to, to reduce this, this, you know, is it hyperpigmentation that we're looking at? Is it burn scars? Is it mm-hmm. uh, hyperemia, which is increased blood supply? These are things that need to be assessed critically on both sides. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think that there's probably a lot of people listening who are like, okay, I feel like I trust this person. I love what he has to say. Do you do virtual consults? I do. Yes. And, okay, uh, great. If I could plug myself, just go to yeah, Zelkin, www.zelkinmd, that's Z-E-L-K-E-N-M-D, or call uh, 949-432-4730. Um, and we can get you in for a virtual consultation. Although I think in-person consultations are always better if it's possible. Yeah, excellent. Um, And you have an incredible YouTube channel, so informational, so educational, an incredible Instagram. And this is, by the way, everyone, this is absolutely not sponsored. We asked Dr. Zelkin to come on because, again, we just think it's so important to have these educational conversations. What are that twenty six thousand? What's that for? I'm gonna I'm gonna send you our W nine. Thank you so much. (laughs) Off air. Yeah, exactly. No, uh, I just want to make sure people be be super transparent about that because, again, I I think it's important. For people to know that they can trust you. Um, and again, it's a murky world of cosmetic procedures. So I love being transparent on this podcast about it. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Zelkin. And then what's your Instagram? I'm not sure if you said Jonathan it. Jonathan Zelkin, MD, I believe. Just J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-Z-E-L-K-E-N-M-D. Perfect. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Zelkin. Thank you, Chandler. And we'll be back on Friday, everyone with Patreon. Love you guys. Bye. That's all for now, folks. Don't forget, give us a five-star review. Hit us up on Instagram at Apologists, and we will see you next week live every Wednesday. 